It's been really good to, to meet Jeremy and his wife, Jessica. Uh, we go way back to uh, Thursday. And, uh, you know, it's just lovely to meet people that their, their heart beats in tune uh, to your own and, and, and to this church. And they do some amazing work in Iraq and Syria through their preemptive love coalition. So we're going to spend half an hour or so having a chat today um, and just asking uh, Jeremy a few questions. So I hope the, it's okay, but I put my hat on because I'm cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I've got my beanie in the car if you'd prefer. I mean, you know. I'm, I'm fresh out of Iraq where it's... Uh, not this cold right now. <laughs> no, no. 44 <laughs> degrees in Baghdad today. And this afternoon, the good news is that you get to fly to Brisbane. So uh, it is a, it's a tad warmer up there. This is wild for us, though, isn't it? Did you guys have hail around here today? Yeah, we did at home. And, uh, yeah, I was just sitting in the lounge singing All Hail King Jesus. And <laughs> it was wonderful. So Iraq, you know, when I first heard about you guys and what you're doing there, I just thought, oh, Iraq, seriously, because, I mean, we, we just see this on the news. Of course, we only see the worst of the worst on our news. So tell us the story about how you guys ended up in Iraq, how and why. We were already living in Turkey, which is a whole other story that you can come back to if you want to, but we were already living in Turkey um, when we started hearing how the Iraq war effort was really going off the rails. It was really devolving and just going worse and worse and worse. This is 2004, five, six. And um, you know, our, our life in Turkey wasn't all that we had imagined it was going to be. Some of the things that we were doing there weren't going smoothly. So I think the stage was set for something new, something fresh. I was, I was itching, she was itching for something to change. And I don't know, some combination of that agitation that we were already going through in Turkey at that time, and then the war effort in Iraq that kind of captured our attention. We started seeing the humanitarian crisis going on in Iraq. And uh, we ended up knowing a guy who emailed me and said, I've been following along with your life a little bit. Uh, we had met some time before, so we were friends marginally. And he said, I, I just feel like, sense that he was Baptist, so I don't know if he probably wouldn't have said it was like a word or anything, but um, he sensed that he felt like there was something going on that we should consider moving to Iraq. We were living in Turkey, and he was inviting us to move to Iraq. He thought we had the skills the orientation, the... He thought we had all the things that would make us good for Iraq at that time. It didn't make a lot of sense. The email came completely out of nowhere. And we were not asking for a move. But it was just one of those things that landed in my inbox with like the weight of God behind it. Like this is so stupid and so weird and so random that anyone would invite us to move our family with our six-month-old little girl to a war zone that I have to pay attention to this. This is one of those things that I don't think we can ignore. And so we began a conversation with this friend who was already living in Iraq, and I decided to go on a trip. I decided to go visit him in Iraq where he was doing some amazing work with the military. Uh, he was an engineer. He was helping rebuild roads that had been destroyed by the war or destroyed by years of just misuse. 
Um, he was doing water projects, bringing fresh water, not just to like a community, like we often see water projects. This guy was doing multi-million dollar water projects, bringing water to entire cities of people. And it, it was just unlike anything I'd seen. I'd never seen a Christian working professionally in a place like that. I, I knew some missionaries who were doing it in that decidedly missionary kind of way. But I'd never seen someone with a legitimate degree, a legitimate business, handling millions and millions of dollars with great reputation, standing before governors and generals and, and just wielding a professional life in a way that benefited so many hundreds of thousands of people. It was really attractive and inspiring to me. So I went to Iraq. Landed on a, not to Baghdad initially, I landed in a small little regional airport that was probably the entire size of this room. Like there was a runway and then there was something the size of this room. And um, I landed in the middle of the night and everyone processed through pretty quickly and went right out those doors and then the place was just empty. And I went out the doors and there was no one waiting for me. And... The janitor starts mopping up behind me and starts turning off the lights and starts like, he's like, you got, I don't know where you're going to go, but you can't stay here. You got to leave. And I was like, I, I don't, I mean, I couldn't even speak his language. This is all just hand motions and stuff. Basically like, shoo, get out of here. <laughs> and um, I didn't know what to do. There was no, there was no obvious place for me to go. My ride hadn't showed up. I'm in the middle of the most notorious war-torn country on the planet. I don't want to take another step until someone who can speak my language, who I know is you know, going to take me by the hand and tell me what to do. And this bus driver pulls up and says, get in. And I was like, no. And he says, get in. No, get in. And ultimately, I didn't have much choice but to just get in the bus. Don't speak his language. Don't know where we're going. Don't know what's going on. We're driving by razor wire. We're driving by gun manned sort of sentry stations. And it's like, it's everything that you imagine a war-torn, war-occupied you know, country to be. And some mile or two down the road, he pulls to a stop in the pitch black middle of the night. There's not a lot of electricity in Iraq at this time. And basically just says, get out. I'm like, you just told me to get in. Get out. And so he gets, he, you know, essentially just kicks me out of this people mover bus in the middle of the desert. And I step off and there is my ride. This engineer, water engineer guy. He had somehow gotten locked out. He couldn't get into the airport. And he had been asking about me somewhere out here. And this guy was meant to kind of shuttle me back and forth and make sure that the lone American guy made it out. So the guy's actually helping me. My ride is beleaguered and tired. He's been fighting with generals and airport management and security guards trying to get into me. And that wasn't successful. So he's haggard and mad that we're now hours late. The city's under lockdown. Um, so we can't get home without making a lot of risk or a lot of fuss. And he throws a bulletproof jacket over my head, ducks me into the back of a BMW and says, pull that door closed. And I pull the door closed and it won't move. And I really try to pull the door closed and it won't move. And this is like this thick bulletproof glass, bulletproof door, shield, you know, like just layers and layers of steel tucked in behind, between the door. I've never seen a car like this, and I can barely even get the door shut. And uh, we start 
you know, taken off through the streets in this up-armored bulletproof car, me wearing a flak jacket that I've never been in any kind of situation like this before. The next two, three, four days are just like that. It's just like that kind of stuff everywhere we go. We go to his home uh, in the middle of the night. He shows us to me and my friend that were with me. He shows me to the bedroom. It's pitch black. Um, and he says, all right, boys, have a good sleep. And he turns to walk away and he goes, oh, um, uh, by the way, he's a southern country boy from America. And he goes, by the way, um, if anyone breaks in in the middle of the night and tries to get you, you just climb out that window. You're going to fall into the neighbor's yard. Just lay low. I'll find you in the morning. Good night. <laughs> and walks out. <laughs> and this is like our intro to Iraq. Welcome yeah, welcome home. So the next couple of days, he brings in a parade of guests. He's a professional water engineer, but he brings in a parade of guests who are, have been experiencing these supernatural things that I was not aware of, not prepared for. Um, supernatural visions of Jesus, spiritual experiences, um, hearing of Jesus or some kind of gospel message in the most weird and to my ears, bizarre, unlikely messengers, including dogs preaching the gospel to them. Wow. And people are coming to Jesus left and right, and he's bringing these people to me so that we can somehow capture their stories on audio device, and I can leave the country with an audio recording of what's going on. Amazing. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. It was unreal. It was unlike anything that my theological boxes could contain. And we would sit in these meetings and, and these people would tell me the visions they were having of Jesus or the, the bizarre, to me, bizarre things that they were experiencing. And I would just be like, this is unbelievable. There is something magical, spiritual, sovereign, profound happening here. We have to be a part of this. You're right. This invitation to come move to Iraq, we have to do this. I was alone. Jessica was at home with our, our baby, Emma. And I would step out of these meetings. It was probably 40, 45 degrees in the house that we were meeting in. No electricity, no air conditioning, no fan. And we would just sweat buckets listening to these guys tell their stories in secret. And I would take a break and go outside into the hot summer sun. And you could see bombs going off on the horizon. And he had these snipers positioned on the roof protecting his house while we had these meetings. And I would think, this is insane. What am I thinking? We can't move here. I can't move my daughter here. I can't move my wife here. And it was just day after day of this. Got on a plane home to Turkey where Jess and our, our friends and our team that we were a part of were waiting up for me at 2 or 3 in the morning in our living room. And they said, so how was it? I'd been completely out of touch for all these days. I had no way of communicating with them. How was it? What did you see? What was it like? Is it as bad as we heard? Is, are the spiritual stories as good as we've heard? And I just tried to download whatever I could briefly there at 3 in the morning in our living room. And basically I said it was amazing. God's doing something so unlike anything we've ever heard or experienced. The war is horrible. People are suffering. There's so much need. There's so much opportunity and we could not possibly move to Iraq. I mean, I don't know, maybe if it was just me, I would think about it, but we're a family. We've got these single girls with us. Our baby's six months old. We cannot possibly move to Iraq. And Jessica said, okay, well, 
you've been out there doing it from your perspective. We've been back here doing it from our perspective. We've been praying this whole time you've been gone. And um, thanks for your trip report. We're moving to Iraq. And within six months, we packed up everything we had and either sold it, put it on a truck, and we moved to Iraq. I don't know what your question was. I'm just talking here. Um, I guess you, the, you're doing good answering it. It was Iraq, why and why? how. Yeah. My wife made me do it. <laughs> yeah. She, she had, I, I mean, it, it was all of us. It was something familial. It was something born of conviction. But really, at the end of the day, she, she was sort of the straw that, that mm. pushed us over. Mm. She had the faith, even when my natural inclination was probably to pull back and say, yeah, it could be amazing, but let's play it safe. She mm. said, yeah, it could be amazing. Let's lean into it. Amazing. And it has been. For 12 years you've been there? Yeah. So what's it like living in Iraq? Because we only get these pictures, as I said before, of, you know, war zone, etc. What's it like living there where you live and raising, you have two, two children now, what's it like raising your kids in Iraq? In many, many ways, it is as normal and boring as your life is here. I mean, we have routine. We've, we've got our things that we do every day. You know, the kids have school. We've got jobs. Uh, we live in a very walkabout town. We send, the one exciting thing that we have that you don't have is we get to send our kids down to the grocery store. They can walk a couple blocks away at times without us to go buy milk, cheese, eggs, fruit, vegetables, and we just send them off. They're 10 years old, 11, 13 years old. You know, we've been doing this for years. We've been sending them out to the grocery store and we don't have to do 50% of the grocery shopping that you have to do because our kids do it for us. Um, my point is, in some ways, it's just very normal life. Um, some days, there's nothing to write home about. It's, it's normal people who love their kids and have jobs and run tech firms and internet service providers and grocery stores and accounting agencies and marketing companies and filmmaking companies and we've got artists and we've got music events and you know in many ways it's just a very normal life in other ways it's it's extremely different you know we have we have managed to find the parts of Iraq and pursue the parts of Iraq and now our neighbor Syria we have searched out some of the most extreme situations on the planet. That's not to say that Iraq is just extreme or Syria is just extremely messed up. We have, we have pursued those communities that are extremely in need. We have pursued those cities that have been overrun by ISIS where, where the beheadings, I mean, I've stood in countless places where kids have been kidnapped and men have been slaughtered and and the most horrific of things have happened to others. We do that from having a strong base where we're raising our kids and our life is pretty normal. We, we leave home base and we go out to these really extreme places of suffering in search of people who need hope and who need love and who need to have a little bit of help rebuilding their lives. So that leads on beautifully to what you do, the Preemptive Love Coalition. I do encourage you to go online and check this out. The website is preemptivelove.org and uh, the work that, that you're doing 
in Iraq and Syria is is amazing and inspiring, and I particularly love the blog. So have a read of some of the the stories there uh, on the blog. So tell us how <clears throat> how the Preemptive Love Coalition came about, and and give us some stories of the highlights of you know what you're doing uh, through this organisation. Yeah, there's two foundational stories that really helped this this work that we do today be born into the world. One was very, very early on, within weeks of us moving to Iraq, Jessica was standing on the side of the street trying to hail a cab. And um, this pretty good-looking cab drove by, was driving up, and she's waving at it, trying to hail the cab, but it, it drives on by. And the very next cab behind it is like the oldest taxi in the entire city, you know? It's, it's like rusty and rotted out. You can tell even as it's approaching, this cab's not gonna have any air conditioning, you know? She gets in and it's like the Fred Flintstone car where like the bottom's rotted out and you have to like pedal yourself. Um, and the guy is smiley and kind, but we don't speak the language yet. So he's chattering away about something and she can probably only say, take me home to this neighborhood. And he's like, yeah, sure, except he takes a wrong turn. And in a very kind, humble, beautiful way, he kidnaps her to his house instead. And he says, come in, come in, come in. And she's like, uh, no. She ends, I don't know what he did to like, you know, win you over to go into his house, but ultimately she ends up just sensing that there's, there's, he's not kidnapping me. He's an amazing, smiley, affable guy. There's something I need to see in here. And she goes into his house and sees his eight-year-old girl, who's way too small for her age of eight years old, laying on the ground, writhing, where she's been her entire life, some eight years old, maybe 10 years old, I can't remember. Her entire life she's spent right there in that spot on the ground with cerebral palsy. And um, taxi driver dad saw in Jessica this amazing opportunity, this amazing hope. Maybe she's the one who can finally help us. Maybe she's the one who can finally help Seema, our little girl. And Jessica, is just 100% built for moments like this. Um, and I, I really believe it was divine. The, the image of God in this man, caring so profoundly and deeply about the image of God in his daughter, saw something resonant of the image of God in Jessica. And it all just came to a moment there on the street where he said, I think she could be the healer. And, and so... Jessica ends up in the home with Seema, the little girl, and this starts a relationship with this family. We actually have, at that time, an occupational physical therapist on our team who has a lot of knowledge about how to help Seema live a better life. And, you know, at that time, with this level of knowledge that the family had, she was she was condemned to that state that she was in. They didn't have a lot of knowledge to know what a better life she could live. And so with just a little bit of help and a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of flexing of her arms and bending of the joints and a couple of special chairs that we helped buy for them and upgrade for them over, over the course of, I don't know, maybe a year or two, Seema's life was just profoundly changed by 
that taxi moment. Wonderful. That was one thing. We, had, we would have probably fancied ourselves up until that point as being sort of, I would have, a strictly spiritual people. We wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about heaven and earth, about, well, not even really heaven, heaven and hell, not even earth. Like, I wanted to talk about heaven or hell, you know? All I wanted to talk about is, are you going to hell? How can you get to heaven? Everything was about some eternal reality out there, and I didn't have a lot of worldview for the earth we were living in today. I didn't, I didn't care about the environment. I didn't care about bodies. I didn't care about economics. I didn't care about politics. I just cared about your soul, and SEMA helped turn that corner for me as I saw Jessica be so profoundly impacted by their family. Then I had my own experience um, shortly thereafter when I was in a hotel lobby and this guy set a cup of tea down for me that I had just ordered and he said, hey, can I ask you a favor? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you've been coming to this cafe for a while now. I just want to tell you, I've got this eight-year-old cousin. She's about this big. But when she was born back as a baby, she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these decades of Saddam's dictatorship and the UN sanctions against our country and now Al-Qaeda targeting our doctors and our nurses and assassinating them left and right and US airstrikes bombing our hospitals, like there's no one left who can save her life. You're an American, you're a Christian, I know you came here to help us. Will you help my cousin? And that was where it really tipped over for me was like we have to be about caring for the physical needs the environment, the, yeah. the world around us, yeah. if we want to have any credibility to dare pontificate and speculate about eternity. And um, Preemptive Love Coalition in many ways was born out of those two stories. Beautiful, preemptive. So um, doing something before you're asked or doing something before anyone else? First in, last out? Well, I met these some of the early encounters I had in Iraq made a, a significant impact on me, including a general posture that I was seeing from militia, military, certainly the terrorists. There was this overarching mantra, and, and one military group put it best, I guess, when they said, shoot first, ask questions later. That's what we say. And another guy chimed in and said, yeah, kill them all. Let God sort it out. Let God sort them out. And then a third person said, yeah, it's better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. And I thought, my God, is this, is this the best we can do? Is this really how this war is being prosecuted across the country? Like, even if you're joking, even if you're just being braggadocious here in this moment, like, I think words matter, and I think ideas matter, and if this is the way we're, we're even practicing over drinks, if this is the way we're blowing off steam, what is really going to come out of us when we're pressed and we're scared and, and we're not in the safety of this cafe where we're all just cutting up right now? And I went home and I, I said to Jess, like, I don't, I don't think this is the way we want to be a part of. I mean, we, we said we're here to follow Jesus, I don't think Jesus endorses this shoot first, ask questions later, self-protectionist kind of way. What if we're meant to turn this whole thing on its head? What if we're actually meant to try and become a people who dare to love first and ask questions later? What if, what if instead of being afraid that we would love the wrong person, we actually dared to love them all and let God sort it out? 
And what if there was actually something worth living for that we didn't have to orient our entire lives toward not ending up in a box carried to our grave, but we could actually live for something that was worth dying for? And so out of that, we decided to sort of blackmail ourselves, is how I often put it. Um, we called the work that we were now going to launch out on, we called it the Preemptive Love Coalition. Because rather than being a people who would strike first, we wanted to jump forward in love, to love you before you did anything to love me, to bless you before you did anything to hurt me. And so we called it the Preemptive Love Coalition, We're kind of painting ourselves into a corner so that we wouldn't have anywhere to go but love. I love that. It's amazing. Well, it, you've been there for 10, no, sorry, 12 years. What would be uh, one of the most difficult things that you have faced personally, you know, you and your family? Um, well, as you know, the first six or seven years, we were doing great work helping kids like Seema, helping kids like this little girl that we had met in that hotel who, who needed a life-saving surgery. But then in the middle of our work, going rather well and growing and kind of rising on eagles' wings, I had sat in the halls of power and sat with the poorest of the poor. I slept in Saddam Hussein's palace. We met with Vice President numerous times and the First Lady numerous times and the Grand Ayatollah of all Shia Islam and the Grand Mufti of all Sunni Islam. I mean, our, our reputation, our renown, if you will, had really grown. And then this little-known group started taking over cities left and right until they had about a third of Iraq under their control, this group that we now call ISIS. And they controlled a significant proportion of Syria, a significant proportion of Iraq, and they overran the city of Mosul and drove millions and millions of people over time out of their homes. And for a while there, they controlled this whole contiguous piece of land that they called the Islamic State of Iraq and Sham, or the Levant. And that was a game changer in, in the worst and scariest of ways. I mean, we had had terrorism in Iraq, and there was always this threat that someone would roll up with a bomb in their car and, you know, it could be game over. But, but there was nothing like an entire country's worth of land controlled by this kind of group. And they had so many people under their control, under their thumb, or really more under their boot, that, that you at once, I at once was terrified of this territory and deeply compassionate because of the friends who still lived there. I mean, we'd been to Fallujah a lot. When Fallujah was known as one of the scariest places on the planet, you know, we were among the first Americans to ever go in without weapons. That's what the people of Fallujah told us. So to have walked Fallujah, to have walked to Crete, and then for all of us to have been driven out of Fallujah and out of Tikrit, and now it to be under ISIS control, um, our hearts broke with compassion for these, these friends who were now living under ISIS or had been driven out of their homes and their homes destroyed by ISIS. And so we, we changed our work significantly after that happened, and we just said, look, we're here for it. This is our home. These are our people. We're not just some aid organization that popped up on the scenes because 
We happened to see something on CNN last week and we want to respond. We're, we didn't just pop over from the Philippines on our next assignment. This is home to us. And when home and your people come under attack, you do whatever you can to, to survive and to care. And so we changed all of our work and just kind of took this posture of said, whatever it takes, we're here for it. And we just started doing whatever it takes, even though we didn't have much of a pedigree in responding to crisis, in responding to that kind of war. So we would just start, over time, we learned to just start running. There was wisdom involved, but ultimately, we just started heading toward the war. Wherever people were running for their lives, we started running toward the thing that was making them run. And we would drive by other aid organizations on the way, those who had kind of camped out on the periphery. And we did whatever we could to press further and further and further into the front lines where the bombs were still falling and the snipers were still sniping at us. That's where we set up shop to help people get food, water, medicine, whatever they need. We're there for them. Um, one day while heading out to Fallujah in particular, our team got stuck out in the desert and the team ended up getting divided in two groups. We had two huge trucks, massive semi 18 wheeler trucks filled with hundreds of thousands of pounds of food, but they had taken a dirt road and they got sort of marooned in the desert and the axles had gotten stuck in the dirt. And so we're out there, I was not on this convoy, but our team was out there in the desert, just marooned, and then we heard news that there had been a massive ISIS outbreak right there in that area. 800 cars worth of ISIS, however many people that is, 800 cars in a single convoy are dashing across the desert headed right toward our team. We get on the phone with our team leader, and he says, don't worry, I, I, I know what to do. I was in the militia, they taught us some stuff. We're just gonna strip down into our underwear and bury our brown bodies in the brown dirt, and hopefully they'll just drive right by us. Uh, another half of the team had peeled off before the ISIS outbreak to try and move on with the mission in some ways. And when the ISIS outbreak happened, they were separated from the other part of our team. And so they turned around home and tried to go home back to Baghdad. But Baghdad had shut the gates and wouldn't let anyone in because there was this massive ISIS outbreak. And now everyone who was locked out in the desert, including us, was now suspect. Everyone is a potential ISIS guy, you know? And so half the team's locked out at the Baghdad gate. Half the team is literally marooned in the desert with no mode of transportation to get away, buried in the dirt. And I get this text message, it's well after midnight at this point. And um, the text says, they're right here on top of us. It was whispered. If a, if a text could whisper, they're right here on top of us. And we would later learn that 70 of those cars had kind of peeled off and used our massive semi-trucks as a meeting point. And they were talking on the phone just as far as we are away from one another and our guys could hear, I think he probably set the text before like it all got really acute. I think as these cars are rolling up, he's like, they're right here on top of us. This is the last word you hear from me, that's why. Um, and they end up this close to one another, talking on the phone. Yeah, we're by those big semi-trucks on that dirt road, if you can find it there. All of our headlights are off so the gunships can't find us. 
helicopters have been bombing this area throughout the night using infrared, just blowing up cars wherever they can find them. And, and our, our guys are out in the desert about to be you know, discovered and slaughtered by these particular ISIS guys who are standing around. Or their heat signature is going to trigger the gunships above and the whole thing is just going to be blown up and our guys are going to be caught up in that as well. Meanwhile, back at the Baghdad gate, our guys are arguing to get in. Let us back into the city. Let us home. And their own countrymen, Iraqi soldiers, are holding them up at gunpoint saying, how, how do we know you're not ISIS? Get out. Like, we're not going to we're not going to assassinate you right here, but we're not letting you in. You can't prove who you are. And they're wearing preemptive Love Coalition shirts, and, you know, they're, they look like aid workers. But, and I'm just praying for daybreak. They've sent me videos of the gunships dropping bombs, and I'm just I'm, I'm trying to get on the phone with the prime minister's office, and we've got other people working every angle we can. And I'm just praying for daybreak. If, if daybreak comes, the ISIS guys will scatter, and uh, we'll all be free. And they sent me, my guys at the gate sent me a picture around 5 a.m. And it's like, you know, this kind of groggy thing going on. And I, it's, the sun is up over the horizon. And I finally just go, oh, okay, we made it. And I allowed myself to doze off to sleep. And my sleep was interrupted 30 minutes later by this phone call. I pick up the phone, and one of my guys on the other end is screaming, Save us, Jeremy, save us. You've got to help us, Jeremy. They're killing us. They're bombing us, Jeremy. And then the phone just goes dead. dial him back, and I dial him back, and I get nothing, and I get nothing, and I get nothing, and um, finally, he gets back to me. He's alive. An Iraqi military or American military, we don't know which, made a couple of passes at our guys and dropped four bombs targeting our guys. They're laid out on the ground, shrapnel embedded in their skin, but everyone survives, thankfully. And they end up Around you know, 6.30 a.m., they end up managing to, to get out of there. One of the soldiers who had held them up at gunpoint actually died in the, in the bombing. And um, they end up making it back to their, their hotel. And uh, washing themselves off and picking the shrapnel out. And um, somewhere around that same time, the timeline gets a little fuzzy for me, but they not only decided our food is still out there in the desert, we've got to get back to our food so we can take it to all the people who are so desperately in need. They head back out on the same road to love anyway. They just said, we want to be the people. This is like one of our team mantras is love anyway. And this group of Muslim guys says, we want to take that seriously. We want to be people who love anyway. So we're getting back in our cars and we're going back on the road and we're going back to face ISIS if that's what it comes down to because there are people out there suffering and we want to go love anyway. And we got word that a bunch of ISIS fighters had been rounded up and a bunch of suspected ISIS fighters from Fallujah had been rounded up and had been pulled over into the secret detention center. And so we interfaced with the Ministry of Interior and raised our hand and said, tell us more about these ISIS fighters that you're detaining. Are they being treated humanely? Are they getting food? Are they being cared for properly? We want to come in and actually help the ISIS fighters. And the Ministry of Interior was like, what are you talking about? We said, well, look, 
if there's one thing that is clear as day over the course of this conflict is that hate cannot drive out hate. We cannot bomb these ideas into oblivion. We can kill a bunch of ISIS people, but we can't bomb their ideas away. The only hope we have left, the only power that we haven't employed is the power of love. So we want to come in and we want to show up on the scene for those who are suspected of doing some of the worst things on the planet. And whether they're guilty or they're innocent or they're awaiting trial or they're already convicted, we, we get all that. But we've got the means and we've got the kind of backing, we've got the kind of people on our side who will not begrudge us going to those kind of people in the name of love. And the Ministry of Interior rep said, we've never heard anyone of all the aid organizations ever offer to help the bad guys. You can come on in. So we mounted a response and went into this detention center. And there were maybe five, seven guys lined up in yellow jumpsuits, the worst of the worst, and a bunch of guys in civilian clothes lined up in a yard together when our team arrived. And one of our team leaders, the guy who had actually been stuck out with the, the two trucks and buried himself in the sand, he made a beeline for the, this, the guys lined up against the wall, face against the wall, handcuffed in yellow jumpsuits, and he recognized them. These were like not just ISIS fighters. They were famous ISIS fighters. They were like the guys who had showed up on the videos. And he made a beeline for one of them, and he goes, I know you. You killed my friend. And I've come here to give you a drink. And it was such a profound experience for, for everyone involved. And one of our guys stood in front of the yard of not yet convicted, but maybe suspected ISIS collaborators. Let's not say they were all fighters, but collaborators. And he just pled with them, and he, he, he called them brother. He said, brothers, what have you done? You've betrayed your country. You've betrayed your religion. You've betrayed one another. Come home. Come back to us. It was just a, it was a beautiful, beautiful illust illustration, by which I mean living out yeah. of this thing that maybe had just been on a T-shirt for us, love anyway. And these Muslim men are leading the way, leading me, showing me the power of love, showing me what's really possible and just taking my faith to a whole new level. Sounds an awful lot like Jesus to me. Amazing. Amazing. So Islamic State is in decline, uh, largely, I believe, defeated in Iraq at least. Probably pockets of it still around in different places in Iraq and Syria. What, what do you think the future is for Iraq and for Syria as well, um, recognising that they are very different scenarios? Yeah, I'll give, a, I'll give a brief geopolitical answer and then I, I've got maybe a slightly deeper answer as well. I think geopolitically speaking, um, Bashar al-Assad has won the war in mm. Syria. I mean, it's, a, it's just a foregone conclusion. There's one pocket of resistance, meaningful resistance left. There's one pocket of territory left. But 
for all purposes, somewhere in the next three to six months, there's a really good chance that that is further recaptured by the Assad government, and you know that's that. Yeah, Bob's your uncle. So um, that, however, is not the same as saying that ISIS has been defeated or Nusra has been defeated or the Muslim Brotherhood that that was sort of the the grandfather of some of these other type movements and concerns have been defeated or, or satisfied. Maybe defeated isn't even always the best word. Satisfied. They have real concerns. They have legitimate problems that they've wanted addressed and, and that has not been satisfied. The, the mechanism by which much of this has been addressed is the, the mechanism of violence. And so that can put down a rebellion, but it can't actually bring forth life. So Assad wins. I mean, that's, and there's many, many people who are happy about that. Many of my friends are very happy about that. And then there's friends who are, who are just quietly kind of going underground and hoping not to be caught up in the dragnet of violence. So Syria is very much of two minds right now, you know, there or three minds. There, there are those who who will say, okay, we tried revolution. It's actually good that Assad is winning now. We wanted revolution. We wanted overthrow. That came out to be chaotic and horrific. We, we surrender. Let Assad win. At least under Assad, we had um, stability, you know, and government worked and things functioned. And it was scary, and we had these grievances, but we don't want to go back to the ISIS days. We don't want to go back to the Nusra occupation days. And then there's the people who have always ever only been on Assad's side, who said all those people were always terrible terrorists, and we're glad that now Assad is showing his strength and the greatness of Syria. And then there are those people who who will probably continue to fight to the very death. Um, put a pin in that comment on Syria. Iraq is a little different. Iraq uh, lost its strongman leader, you know, 15 years ago, and has been recovering in many ways and trying to get its bearings again after the 30-year strongman is gone. And so that's meant numerous changes in government and elections that went better or worse and charges of corruption and jockeying for power. And, and that's still very much up in the air. Democracy is working in Iraq, but not without challenge, not without risk, not in a way that makes everyone feel satisfied and, and represented all the time. In both Iraq and Syria, there's real borders that are being debated. This land should belong to these people, and this land naturally belongs to these people. So there's a lot of that that still needs to be worked out. I think it's too early to make a definitive geopolitical or regional statement on what's going to happen. Assad wins. Assad stays in power for the next 10 to 15 years. That much I can, that much I can say. Um, but... A lot beyond that, it, it comes down to will we address the deeper issues and needs and concerns of the population? Will issues of reconciliation be pursued? Will brave action and humility be pursued? In Iraq, we work very closely with the Prime Minister's office. We're seeing some amazing things come out of the Prime Minister's office and come out of our friends pursuing reconciliation, opening their arms wide and saying, we were wrong. We, as the government, let you down. How can we make it better? Wonderful. 
So there's some hope there. Yeah. Um, so geopolitically I, I, and regionally, I think some of it's still up in the air. Uh, the Trump administration is vowing to not spend money on the reconstruction of Syria. Uh, that will potentially have extremely negative ramifications. Um, and I, th I think, sadly, that these cycles of violence will probably continue. I think sadly, not inevitably, there's a difference, is not inevitable, but we are collectively making the decisions that will sadly probably perpetuate the cycle. So that five years or 15 years from now, we, I'll probably be back here talking about the same stuff. I don't think it has to be that way. I absolutely believe there are things that could be done that would, that would change this. These people, those people, they are not hardwired to be this way. They're doing the thing, or, or if they are hardwired, they're hardwired in the same way that we're hardwired. That we would do much of the same stuff if the war was on our doorstep. Yeah, exactly. So, at a deeper level, I actually am filled with a lot of hope, really. Um, from afar, the geopolitical stuff, the 30,000 foot view, it, it can be, it can cause despair. It can be concerning because there are so many chess pieces that have to line up just so for it all to work out right in the end. And that's, that's hard. No one can orchestrate that. Um, the American president, no matter how powerful or popular, was never able, would never have been able, there is no president able to make all the moves in this environment that make things go back to rightness and wholeness. And to be sure, we do not have the best and the most popular right now, you know? So um, it's an impossible task for even the best and the most popular of leaders. And, and that's just not what any of these countries are, that's not the card they have right now. I'm hopeful because at a human level, the work Jessica leads for our team every day, helping, yes, hundreds of thousands of people, but, but one at a time relationships. We see so much hope on the human scale. Um, we're so close to ground zero on this stuff that we get to see very meaningful upgrades in people's life and well-being. Um, we see people, scales falling from people's eyes, as it were, at times, as to how they perceive the other. Uh, and that's, that's ultimately what societies are made of. That's what countries are made of, is, is individual people who carry all of our hopes and our fears and our baggage with us. So, so I'm very encouraged, actually, because what, the work we do on the ground is, is just full of change yeah. for the better. So many other things we could talk about, Jeremy, and uh, it's hard to get it all in in half an hour, although you have shared some wonderful stories uh, with us this morning. Um, the, the three talks that Jeremy has given, I've interviewed him last night at Cheltenham, this morning at Cheltenham, and now here at our Frankston campus. So um, they're all quite different. So we're going to be uploading all three, and I would encourage you to listen to or watch what he said last night and this morning at Cheltenham, because they were radically different. And seriously, you, I think this morning has, with the stories you've shared, they're the first time I've heard those stories. So you guys have got some cream on, on top of the milk right now. I'd just like us to finish up um, by you giving some thoughts on how we, 
here in the Bayside area of Melbourne, how we can offer preemptive love to the people around us. One scary step at a time. Because I think to, to hear a story of, you know, some of our closest friends in our team being locked out in the desert, running from bombs, that's so radically different than what you're likely to experience here today. But if you're not careful, you'll find yourself that far behind enemy lines if you commit yourself to the way of Jesus one scary step at a time. We, we didn't just jump from our life in America when we were 21 into this bombing scenario in Fallujah overnight. It was one scary step at a time, 17 some years in the making. And September 11th, 2001 was a very catalytic moment for America, for Jess and me and our life. And that night, or maybe the next, September 11th, September 12th, we gathered in a living room to pray for Osama bin Laden. It was like just a slight turning of our head from some of the most hateful rhetoric going on at that moment to a slightly more open posture on our part to dare pray for our enemy. It was a small move. It was like just the smallest of moves. But like a ship's rudder, a small move, however many miles down the road, can end you up in two vastly different positions. And I'd say focus on the small moves, but I think every one of those words matter. One step at a time. One. Don't try to map it all out. You don't need to know what happens next. Just walk up to the person in the grocery mart and dare to say hi. You don't need to know what the next step is after that. You don't need to know what this next step is. Pull the car off the side of the road and talk to someone. Drive to the mosque and knock on the door. Look up something on a website. Talk to your senators about immigration. Look up someone, approach someone who sees the world drastically differently than you do. You don't have to agree. You don't have to understand. You don't have to approve. Just take one step toward it. And I think it should be a scary step. If it doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, what's the, what's the point? That's what we're all already doing anyway, is just kind of going through the motions. And I'm constantly at need of trying to figure out what's the next move that I need to have to upgrade. I've been scared, but that's all in my rearview mirror now. What's out ahead of me? What's the yeah. next thing? What's the next thing I need to learn? What's the next point of arrogance I need to be released of? And so I think, I think it needs to be a little scary, a little uncomfortable making. And um, I'll tell the waterfall thing real fast and yeah. then be done. Yeah, do that. That'd be cool. uh, we... We sang a song at, at the other couple services, and, and when we were singing it, I think the lyric was something about fill me, fill me, fill me, fill me anew, fill me afresh. Um, fall, that's yeah. right, fall. Fall afresh. Did you sing that here this morning? Um, I don't know. But the, the lyric just hit me in a really special way when I heard it the first time, because Jessica and I had just taken our kids on this tour of American national parks. And when we were in Yellowstone, National Park, one of our biggest and most treasured, there was, there's a big waterfall that we wanted to go to and wanted to see. And I, we'd seen it on the postcards, and it was gorgeous, and it was so close on the postcards. And so we went there. We wanted to get close to this waterfall. And we parked in the parking lot that they had kind of made out for us and started winding our way up the hill. 
and it opened up onto a viewing station. And so we come around the corner, and there's, there's this landing that they've made for us to look out over the gorge onto the waterfall. And the waterfall was actually way far away. It was all the way over there, and we were all the way over here on this viewing station. I was like, this doesn't look like the postcard at all. Like, what'd they do, fly a drone over there Probably. right in yeah. front of the waterfall? Like, this, I feel like I've been sold a bill of goods. We're so far away. And I just started singing a song of griping and carping about how far away we were from the waterfall. But Jessica and our son Micah, who's 10, they were like, yeah, this is so far away. Let's go find it. And they turn around and take off down this back trail and they're headed down the mountain and headed down to the river, and they're going to follow the river up, hopefully, and try and see how close they can get to the waterfall. And Emma, our 13-year-old and I, we just stayed on the landing and just kept griping and singing songs about how we wanted and wished that we were so much closer to the waterfall and wished that we were getting wet from the waterfall. But alas, it's so far away. And just this image came to me as we were singing this morning and last night, If you want something fresh to fall on you, if you want a fresh word, if you want a fresh fire, if you want a fresh drowning in the torrential love of God, it, it's there. Yeah. It's, not, it's not likely to be in the place you already are. You've already gotten that blessing. You've already gotten that waterfall. You've already experienced that fire, that wind, that healing. There is, I think, more out there for us, but it's going to require that we leave the place that we already find so familiar and take one scary step down the back trail where we don't know where it lends up to get closer to the fresh falling of, of what I think God wants to do in and through us. I love that. So it's getting outside your comfort zone, isn't it? Meeting people. In fact, one of our initiatives for this year um, is for everyone to spend time with someone that is different and preferably in a category of people that we wouldn't normally mix and mingle with. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to who has actually done that yet, but that's just a little timely reminder that it's, uh, it's nearly September and uh, it would be good to pray into that. You know, um, For some people, it's uh, people that you've already mentioned You know, that are often demonised by our media or our politicians. We saw another example of that this week here in Australia where, you know, refugees and uh, Muslims uh, are the other. They're, they're the demonised, different people um, who want to kill us or take over our country or whatever the case might be. And, and it's wonderful to do what you're talking about and actually just step out of that comfort zone because often, and I found this true in my own life, the waterfall is actually in conversation with people like that. Um, without taking too much more time, just, just very quickly, a personal example of that was when Christy and I and the kids were on holiday in Malaysia a number of years ago. And the, uh, the place where we went is uh, often frequented by people from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And I ended up meeting these two young guys playing uh, water volleyball, of all things, and we got on really well. And afterwards, they invited me to their balcony at the hotel, and we drank tea and talked for about three hours. And I'm gonna tell you, the waterfall was right there on that balcony. The, the, the sense of the presence of God as we had this most amazing, refreshing conversation um, about the differences and similarities in our culture um, and, our, and our faith and discovered that we actually had a whole lot more in common 
than I had ever assumed. So I'd encourage you, do, do what Jeremy's talking about, you know, step out and, and get to meet some of those people and find out where the presence of God is. It's been awesome to have you with us this weekend. Pleasure to be with you. It's been really good. Could you put your hands together for Jeremy Courtney? Bless you.